Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. My name is Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are building a community of people interested in positively applying behavioral science to their work and life. We do this by having fun and engaging conversations with a wide variety of people. In this episode, we are continuing our series with Carnegie Mellon researchers and sharing a conversation we had with Professor Jeff Gallick. Jeff is an associate professor of marketing in the Tepper School of Business at CMU, and he is on loan to the Social and Decision Sciences Department that resides in the Dietrich College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and he is a great fit for that interdisciplinary group. Jeff's research spans consumer behavior, consumer psychology, as well as judgment and decision-making. His findings have been published in top academic journals, and he has made presentations at top marketing and psychology conferences around the world. On top of that, Tim and I found him to be just an interesting and curious guy, and he was lots of fun to talk to. Way. We discussed several topics within his research purview, but focused on three areas— We discussed Jeff's findings in his new research that he's doing on hedonic decline, which is sort of like the economic theory of diminishing marginal utility. We also discussed some fun new research about women changing the height of the heels that they wear when making a move from a high socioeconomic zip code to a lower one, and vice versa. High heels and social implications. Do we get to talk about the strangest things ever? We pretty much cover it all. (laughs) Finally, Jeff covered some of his work researching political lies. Two key components of that are lies about policies and personal lies. And do we care about one type of lie more than we care about another? You're going to have to listen to hear Jeff talk about it. (laughs) In our grooving session, Tim and I tackle the implication of some of Jeff's findings for our work and life. We also groove on how product developers can create more successful products by leveraging some of these findings. And we discussed the implications of high-heeled social changes. Pun intended. Um, Yeah, maybe. (laughs) So sit back and enjoy another episode in our Carnegie Mellon series with Professor Jeff Gallick. Welcome, Jeff Gallick, to the Behavioral Groups podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. We're glad that you're here. I'd like to start with a speed round. So, Monet or Michelangelo? Monet. Bike or unicycle? Bike. Live your life without a laptop or without a mobile device? Laptop. Which is easier to make, a table or a chair? Oh, a table, easily. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, why is that? Why is a table easier? A chair you have to shape to somebody's contour to make it comfortable. Tables, four legs, an apron atop. It's pretty straightforward. (laughs) Pretty straightforward. (laughs) Okay. Woodworker uh, extraordinaire here. False. (laughs) So, so uh, let, let's start with, uh, with talking about uh, research you're working on right now. Sure. Uh, sure. So one project I'm working on uh, that I'm pretty excited about, this is with my collaborator, uh, Clayton Critcher. He's at UC Berkeley. Uh, and we were interested in understanding political lies. So in today's climate, it's not too surprising that that's an interesting topic to think about. I would, that's not uh, topical at all. No, wow, where would no, you, how in yeah. the world could you come up of, with yeah. that? Wow. I can't think of any politician who lies, <laughs> not one. Fortunately, <laughs> uh, wow. Yeah, funny enough, we start the paper by basically citing something from, you know, thousands of years ago saying, you know, political lies have been around basically forever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I love that. Yeah. That's um, good. It's but not a new thing. It's definitely words. not a new okay, thing. Okay, good. So, good to know. 
What is new is it seems like it's becoming more commonplace. Uh, so nobody's surprised that politicians lie, right? You know, why are politicians' lies moving, uh, lips moving, right? That's the old joke. Uh, but why today is it something that we're doing, uh, we're seeing all the time? Uh, and so what we want to do is kind of follow a systematic investigation of, from the individual's perspective, how do we uh, interpret a lie? And why do we excuse it sometimes and not other times? Oh, that's um, fascinating. And so... Some of it is straightforward enough. Um, if I'm a Democrat and a Democrat politician lies, I might be more likely to excuse that lie than if a Republican politician lie, lies, mm -hmm. and vice versa, right? Right. Um, although I guess the vice versa isn't obvious. Um, there's been a lot of research in psychology looking at kind of how are Republicans or conservatives different than liberals um, or Democrats. Um, and a lot of the research is very... Um, down on Republicans. Um, and you could make a lot of arguments for why that is true. It could just be the case that Republicans have more issues than Democrats, or you could make the argument that uh, academics were very liberal by mm -hmm. nature, and so maybe we're biased, and I think that both sides have their points. Um, we didn't want to take that position. We really wanted to look at this agnostically and say, you know, let's just see what happens in, in people's responses to lies. So the way that we studied this is we said, uh, we actually, ironically, we lied to our participants. Um, <laughs> uh, with ethical approval, we've, you know, everything's, everything's clean. Glad we de we debriefed them at the end. Yeah, everything's, yeah. everything's went right. Went through IRB. Uh, we went through IRB. We okay, did the whole thing. Good. Um, uh, and what we did is we told them that um, to read a, what they believed was a real newspaper article that described a situation where a politician lied. Sometimes the lie was a tweet, because we thought that was pretty topical too. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it was part of a speech. Just didn't really matter. Um, but the politician we changed to be either a Democrat or a Republican lying about uh, something topical, like it could be gun control or increasing minimum wage or something that was politically relevant. Um, and then we asked individuals a series of questions to understand how they responded to that lie. We okay. also identified whether they themselves were Democrats or Republicans. Did, did, um, was the lie revealed? So, and this is based on sorry. some fact, right? Just to be clear, there was a, there was a statement made by the politician, something mm -hmm. like, um, when minimum wage goes up, uh, unemployment skyrockets. That would be a lie. That's actually not true. There's no uh, objectively. There's no evidence for that to be true. Nor is it true to say when uh, when minimum wage goes up, uh, unemployment decreases. Right. That's also not true. It turns out there's okay. just not very good evidence for either side of the argument. Um, so a Democrat might say a Democrat politician might say unemployment would go down. A Republican politician might say employment would go up. Right. It's consistent with their beliefs. Okay. Um, and then we ask individuals a series of questions uh, of the following form. So the first we ask people, um, do you think the statement is true? Okay. Right? So they might believe it's true or, or not, right? And so there's this idea of fake news that's out there. So this is kind of targeting that type of question. Um, regardless of what they say to that, we go to the next question and we say, do you think the politician in this case believe the statement to be true? Oh. Um, what's important is in the newspaper article, not only do they describe the lie, but they describe independent research that was done to debunk the lie, to say that's just not the case. Ah. So we want to say, well, do you think the politician was doing this roughly intentionally, or were they just kind of ignorant themselves and they just said what they said? But then most critically, we say, do you think it's justifiable for the politician to lie, to, we don't say to, to make the statement that he did? And we want to see what they say. And the idea is that we're really interested in that third point. Yeah. But the first two are important to understand as well. And so I won't go into all the details, but we, we basically take statistical controls for those first two and say, above and beyond your belief of whether the statement is true, above and beyond your belief of whether you believe the politician thinks the statement is true, is it okay for the person to lie? Right? And so you do find both sides have partisan favoritism. So if a Democrat lies, if I'm a Democrat myself, I excuse it more so than if a Republican lied and vice versa. 
Um, and that wasn't super surprising, to be perfectly honest. No. But the surprising piece was when we tried to vary the nature of the lie itself. So we classified two types of lies. The first type of lie is what we call a policy lie, which is very much what I described a moment ago. It's a lie designed to advance a policy initiative. So uh, get using using unemployment as the uh, and the minimum minimum wage, wage as one example. We did it in, for yeah. for that. We did it for gun control. So uh, stricter gun, a lie would be stricter gun control laws uh, increase or decrease. Uh, violent crime. Turns out there's not that much of a relationship between the two. We actually strategically pick those types of topics. Uh, we looked at immigration reform, so thinking about uh, as immigrants move into a city, does crime increase or decrease? Again, there's some evidence maybe that it decreases, but it's weak evidence at best. So right. to make that hard claim, it, it's not genuine on either side of the discussion. Okay. Uh, so those types of topics, those would all be what we call policy lies. Um, and on the other hand, is what we call personal lies. These are lies that are not meant to advance an agenda necessarily, but they're designed to advance the self. So I want to make myself look better. And this was inspired, actually, by Ben Carson. So if you remember Ben Carson back in the last presidential election when he was running for the Republican primary, he made a statement that at some point he was stabbed in the belt buckle um, when he was a a young person. And the, the reason that was argued for why he made that statement was to give himself more credibility to say like look at me like i've been through this i know what crime is about i know what life on the street is like been a victim so i can i can relate to you and you can relate to me right and then when a bunch of journalists started investigating this they said there is absolutely no evidence that this has ever happened right so unequivocally all the objective evidence says that was a lie Right? And so th- that statement doesn't advance mm. a policy position in any way, right? There's no obvious direction that that would go, but it could advance him if it's believed. Yes. Yeah. And so then we ask the question, do people excuse those lies? And the answer is no, on both sides of the aisle. No, for yeah. the personal lies. For the personal lies. So policy lies are more forgivable based upon if you're in tribe or out tribe, right? Yep. Yep. And then, however, it's those personal lies, they're inexcusable across the Pretty board. much across the board. Yeah. So we found that to be really interesting. So it's not just, hey, you're a Republican, I'm a Republican, I don't care what you do as long as it's you know helping Republicans or Democrat helping Democrat. Um, that's not what we're finding. We're finding it's really when it's advancing an agenda uh, that people will excuse the lie. When it's advancing just the person, lying is bad. We all kind of know that. doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat. We, we say it's bad. How, wow. do, yeah. how does that play out in the real world, in the current administration? Sure. So. Instance? There's going to be, so just to be clear, this isn't a universal. It's not that every Democrat excuses every other Democrat. No. And, and it's not that every Democrat condemns every single personal lie, and vice versa, it's true for Republicans. Um, it's that this is, these are relative differences. So I think that when a sitting president lies about his own experiences, uh, we don't excuse those to the same extent. There is more uproar about those as compared to when the lies are directed to advance some particular initiative. You'll see more support for a Republican policy lie coming from the current president um, than you will for just flagrant random things. So uh, yeah. it's, it's a relative component then. Definitely. That, that's, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Which yeah. makes absolutely, when you're looking at current news and yeah. you're seeing current response rates, I think that that plays itself out. You can see that. You yeah. can at least, at my N of one in looking at my news feed would probably go, yeah, that makes sense. That's really an interesting yeah. component. Yeah. We would yeah. actually love to do something like a deep dive study into newspaper articles and how people respond to different forms of lies. Um, so one idea that we've had that we haven't done yet um, is looking at PolitiFact. And so they do fact-checking yep. for people's statements. And you can actually say, you know, fact-check this person or this political party, and they can kind of break it down. So it'd be great to see 
you know, go through all those. First of all, see what types of lies exist. We do know that there's plenty of examples of both personal and policy lies. We kind of, you can eyeball that. Right. Uh, but better would be to see, you know, when somebody does have a policy lie out on Twitter, you know, what are the tweets that respond to them? And do it systematically, not just one particular tweet, but go through, you know, the entire corpus of lies coming out of whomever, <laughs> both sides. Both right? sides yeah. would be, ideally both sides, right? You definitely yeah. want to do both sides. Um and, and see what the response looks like as a much more naturalistic test of this as opposed to a laboratory construction. So, Jeff, um, so looking at the difference between how people accept or, or don't accept a policy lie versus a personal lie, did, did your research get into the why? Yeah. So, um, so what we look for – oh, sorry. What we try to understand is, is what's driving this difference, and the difference is a change in trust. Okay. So if a politician lies and it's a policy lie, I still trust them. Because at the end of the day, the reason you tend to think that they're making that lie is because they're trying to do something good, right? It's a lie to advance an agenda that you believe in. So I still trust them in general. Interesting. But if they yeah. lie and it's just some you know BS thing about their history, that, that's weird. And I don't trust you anymore. And if I don't trust you anymore, I'm not going to support you. So it's that change in trust that really drives this. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Is that – and I don't – I don't know if you've done any of this, but is that the same? This is pol- politics, right? And, yes. and pol- political. Is it the same, say, in a corporate environment where, or, or I mean, I'm not sure if there's any of that research that's out there, but that would be another interesting thing. So my, you know, VP that gets caught in a lie about some sort of corporate policy or direction versus sure. a personal lie about him or herself, you know? I mean, admittedly, we're focused on the political domain because yep. it was topical. Um, I think the problem with studying this in a corporate context is there's, we don't have like politifact like we yeah. do for you know for politics. So hard it's hard to, to very hard to yeah, identify have an perspective on this. Yeah, yeah and I, I also imagine that most execs are not making too many personal statements in general, right, in the public sphere. Maybe they are, right, yeah. but certainly not in the in the media sphere. They're mostly going to be talking about their company and what they're doing and their business. So I don't know. I mean, it's plausible that the same would be true, but yeah. it's hard for me to make that claim. Well, and, and, and it's less likely to your point of saying you're, you're not going to be making those individual, you know, statements that are going to be about yourself and, you know, trying to you know, yeah. make yourself look better yeah. outside of a few people, maybe. I don't know. So if historians agree that politicians have been lying for yeah. literally thousands of years, is it possible that our DNA... Is just getting. <laughs> are we just starting to accept the idea that oh, if this is a politician, they're going to lie to us? So I, I don't want to speak to genetics because that is far afield from where <laughs> no, I study. No, um, maybe. Right? But um, I, I'm perplexed as to why we're willing to put up with it at all. It's a great question, and I'll say that I think that's a quest, that's a question for a sociologist or an anthropologist looking at the at culture more broadly than I do. Um, my kind of, let's put it, say, lay opinion of this, because I'm not going to be the, the scientist at this point. Um, I think the shortening of the news cycle has really played a role here, where it used to be that if somebody lies, it takes a while before we stop talking about it. It's a big topic. It's unusual. Now, with the increased prevalence and shorter news cycle, where we just always move on to the next thing quickly, you can get away with it. Right? You lie. It's excused by the partisans that support you most of the time. Um, and then we're just on to the next topic because you have to. Right, That's how you fill a 24-hour news cycle. Right. Um, I think that's very unique to the present time in history as compared to if we go back even 50 years. That just didn't exist. Right. You had a newspaper. You yeah. read it. You digested that for a while. You talked about it with your peers and colleagues. 
And then maybe the next day something else happened. Uh, I mean, all, even that's 24 hours. We don't have that anymore. Right? We don't even it's, have it's, 24 hours now. It's much shorter now. than that. Yeah. 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 I mean, yeah. I, okay. But I'll say that is, examples, yeah. it's worth saying that that's, that's probably my more personal observations than anything I can back with research. Back with any not, research. That's just not what I study. No, but well, it, we've it, got to get a sociologist in here to have that discussion. Yeah, yeah we need to do that. That's, that's, that's it's a fascinating question. Yeah. All right. So, so that's some current research that you're working yeah. on. So you've done a lot of research. So what is some research that you've done that you go, wow, this just didn't get the attention that I thought it would? Or, you know, people need to know about this. This is really important stuff. Help us understand sure. maybe some some of the stuff that you might have done. So um, this will be different from what most of my research is, but it's probably one of my favorite papers that I've written that has almost no attention given Okay. To yeah. Um, so it's a paper that looks at how women purchase shoes as a function of the height of the heel of the shoes. Okay. How, well, let's, okay. I know, I know. How, <laughs> how women purchase shoes based on the height of the heel. Yeah, I promise there's science back here somewhere. <laughs> okay. um, so, Bring it on. Um, a question that is in the kind of realm of social psychology is this question of conformity versus keeping your individual um, preferences. So social kind of consistency, norms. Exactly, versus kind of consistency in identity. And... Those are two completely opposed forces, right? On the one hand, I have this desire to keep my identity as who I am, right? Yep. Um, on the other hand, I've got norms that I need to follow to fit in with other people, right? Those are exactly the opposite. Uh, most of the time, that they kind of yeah. it ends with one another. And there's a lot of research studying those two different ideas in isolation. So there's plenty of evidence to say that there's conformity out there. There's plenty of evidence to say that we kind of maintain our identity and stick to who we are. Um, and what we wanted to do, this was with a few collaborators, is try to say, can we look at a context where those two intersect and we can study them simultaneously? And okay. oddly enough, that context presented itself as uh, heel height in women's shoes. I, I think I think um, oddly enough is, is a good para- is yeah. a good, good introductory phrase so, on that. Yeah. So let me explain. Okay. Um, what we had is uh, what we have is a data set of actual purchases of shoes from, and I, I'm not allowed to say it. There's a non-disclosure agreement, but from an online retailer of high-end, um, high-fashion shoes. So okay. these are multi-hundred-dollar shoes. This is not like Payless Shoe Store or something like that, okay. which, although that doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. Um, so uh, anybody, it's, it's actually not an exclusively uh, a site exclusive to women, but the context that we're studying is going to be women's shoes, in part because there's a very nice quantifiable thing that we can study, which is the height of heels. Okay. So this website tracks in a continuous manner what the heel height is, so one inch, two inches, three inches, and everything in between, ah. as opposed to, say, something else in fashion that we can study, like color, which is a little trickier, like red versus blue. It's just both statistically that's harder to study. Um, it's harder to categorize that to see, like, do people adapt a preference or not, but heel height, boy, is it easy. Like, if I wear a one-inch heel and you wear a one-inch heel, that suggests that we're doing something similar. Three-inch heel, one-inch heel, different, right? And we can, it's very easy to deal with statistically, so it was kind of, it was nice. Let right. me just say that that's not something that I've often thought about. Like, am Nor I a one-inch heel or a three-inch heel? And and if you're a three-inch heel and I'm a one-inch heel, then you, we're You're really much different. more the three-inch heel. I just <laughs> want to let you know. <laughs> yeah. So I admit, okay. I also have never thought about this before this project. Uh, but what we have is really interesting. So we've got a time series of data. So this is a panel data of, of women who made these purchases, repeated purchases in shoes. Because that's by more cool. than one, and what's even more important is we can identify where they live from a zip code basis, and we can identify when they move. So if somebody, let's say, bought a series of items from this store, online store, not just shoes, in zip code A, and then all of a sudden every future transaction is in zip code B, we classify that person as having moved. 
We're not certain that they moved. There could be certainly other reasons, but most likely the reason that that shift occurred is because they moved locations. And then what we could do is we can track how their preferences change as a function of where they move to. So what we can say is the following. If you moved from, let's say, a high heel uh, area, because we can say everybody else in that zip code is wearing high heels on so, average. So you're seeing on average zip code A, they're averaging three-inch heels, right. where zip code B is one-inch heels. Right. So the question is, do you stick to what you've been doing all this time and keep with those three-inch heels, or do you adapt and conform to the social norms and wear one-inch heels or flats or whatever it might be? And the answer is, it depends on the change in socioeconomic status between those two zip codes. So if you move to a wealthier environment, you adapt those preferences. Okay. If you move to a similar or poorer environment, you keep your preferences. So when I'm moving up to Country Club, I'm going to I'm going to adapt the social norms. If I'm moving down to Sam's Club, I'm going to keep my Exactly right. to be exclusive. I'll be the Country Club in That's the Sam's Club. That's a wonderful example of it. Yep. And so what's nice is it doesn't matter if heel height where you move goes up or down. So this isn't about like everybody's adapting to high heels or something like that. You might move to an environment where heel height is very low, right? And you adapt those preferences. You're, tra- you're tracking the trends independent of of these particular changes. You're tracking independent of what direction the change. What's went. Your, Just right. whatever whatever yeah. it is in that new location. If that's a wealthier zip code, you adapt that preference. Right. And so what's really interesting is this is I, we think this is one of the first times with certainly with like uh, real data. As, I shouldn't say real data. You know, or uh, field Quantif- data. Let's yeah, say field, field data. data. There yeah. we go. Field data as opposed to lab data. Um, we simultaneously observe conformity and consistency, right? So conformity when you go up in SES and consistency when you stay flat or go down in SES. Um, and we find that to be really interesting. And that paper has gotten like five citations over the last few years. Uh, and so <laughs> I wish really, more people would pay attention to it. It <laughs> is really interesting. Yeah. I, and I, I wonder, is there other work around this idea of, of, of adapting when when moving up and, and uh, being trying to be consistent with our our uh, self schemas and self identities when we move down. Uh, so not is, not much. So there's some work looking at kind of when do people experience social conformity more generally, and so it's not surprising when there's aspirational groups you might conform more to those than when it's not. Yeah. But it's not investigated in kind of the same way that when we have you know nice field data, really well, really good observations. Yeah. Um, and by the way, heels. What one of the reasons that they're phenomenally interesting is they're um, they're something that everybody observes. Right, so you see it in other people, which yeah. is another unique reason why this is worth studying right. uh, for heel height. Like you wouldn't see somebody's movie preferences. We actually thought about doing that. So we have another data set that with with movie purchase data, uh, and we we have the same thing. We could identify identify people who move, uh, and then we didn't we didn't do the study because we said, well, you know what? How are you ever going to know what movies you know on Netflix or whatever you're watching back home? People don't talk about it to the same extent that you see somebody else's fashion choices right, every right, single day. Right. So you don't have that social proof component that comes exactly with right. with yeah. that. So yeah. making sure I understand, just to go back, but wealth isn't uh, associated with the height of the heel. So, so no. three-inch heels are not it, – it's, it's dependent upon the location and various different pieces. Yeah. And so did you get into some of the why – why are people – you know, acclimating or, or adopting the 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 wealthier shoe heel size. So unfortunately, versus not. not in yeah. this in this particular paper, no. And the okay. reason is because all we had were transaction data. This okay. was unlike a lab study where we can go and ask people so, whatever so, we want. So there's no surveys. There's no this focus is actual, groups. There's, and that's what's it's really just nice observable too. data. It's well observable to the company. Yeah, to the company. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. They have their sales data. They have, they track what products they sold and to whom. And they shared anonymized version of that with us. I yeah. love that, though. Yeah. I, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, fun stuff. 
Okay. In, in the paper, by the way, we, we do break out, and I don't have it off the top of my head, but we break out, uh, if anybody's curious, kind of where the high heels are, where the flats are, where you adapt, <laughs> and what the different SDSs are. So we break it down a little bit to give some example of this. So uh, I encourage oh, I, I encourage okay. listeners to go find the paper. Go find the paper. Yeah. What's the title well, of the paper? Do you remember? Uh, I don't. Do you have okay. yeah, so we'll, we'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes. We'll put it in the show notes, and we'll have a link if it's out And it's published at Plus One, so it's an open access journal. Perfect. Anybody can read it. That's terrific. Well, we'll make sure that we get that in the show notes so that people can have access to that because I yep. think that will generate a lot of interest. It's a fun actually. paper. Well, it's it, very cool. I actually am going to go out and look at it. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. Uh, so, interest of one. Yeah. So before we talk about music, uh, we'd like to boil, have you boil all of your research experience down to three tips. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> three tips for, for listeners. For our for listeners. listeners. Yeah. For so our listeners. if you, yeah, our listeners are out there. It's about the application of behavioral science to life and work. So sure. what are... Th- a couple things that you can you can suggest to our listeners that will make their work or life better. There's a little bit of backstory to this, but um, there the two things that we just talked about, the heel height and the politics, they're actually anomalies in my research program. Most of what I do is a study of what we call hedonic decline. So this is a term that we've coined recently, but basically this is the idea that most enjoyable things with time and repetition become less enjoyable. This is not surprising to most people, right? That's the context that we study. So we've done a lot of work looking at uh, why that is, how do you slow that down, uh, what consequences this has for individuals and for firms and so on. Um, and so we, we, that's the, bu- the, you know, the bulk of the research that I've done. Um, the joke is always, you know, the reason I don't want to talk about it necessarily is because I'm tired of talking about the thing that I'm doing. <laughs> the things right? that you write I'm about no longer, all the time. No longer enjoying it, but, you know. Um, but anyways, but you do. This, yeah. is, this is your life work, right? It's for, certainly for the last 15 years or so, yeah. Yeah, that's significant. Um, okay, so what, what do we know from it? One of the neat things that we've found, and this is a few of collaborators in particular, one I always want to call out is Joe Redden. He's in the University of Minnesota. He's a good friend and collaborator, um, is that the, the old way of thinking about hedonic decline, or some people, for, for those who prefer different terms, think of it as satiation or habituation or adaptation or diminishing marginal utility for economists. Uh, it's all basically the same thing with different kind of some differences in there, but more or less the same thing. Um, but for the time being, we're going to say that hedonic decline is pretty much the coolest thing on the face of the earth. That's what we're going to go with. That's yeah. th- we just wrote a nice review paper where we call it <laughs> hedonic decline, and I'm going to try and own that label. So. Do. Let's do um, it. But anyway, so most of the research in that space for the last hundred years or so, this is not a new topic, um, has conceived of the way that hedonic decline happens as something like a meter that your body or your mind tracks. So as you go through your day, something in your head, probably, sometimes it's physiologic, more physiological in nature, um, tracks, you know, I've eaten so many M&Ms, so I shouldn't have more M&Ms. I've eaten 10 of them, so the 11th isn't going to be good. Or it's been three hours since I last watched a movie, so let me watch a movie, right? So there's very, like, quantitative tracking of what's been going on. Um, and what my collaborators and I have said, and, you know, that's probably right, but we understand human psychology enough to say that there is no meter that says I've had 10 units of something or three hours of something or whatever it is. Instead, what happens is we construct those things on the fly. Um, and so in the moment you're about to consume something else, let's say the next M&M or the next movie or the next song, perhaps, um, something in your system, in your brain, says, well, what does it feel like in terms of how many I've had in the past? And what does it feel like in terms of how far back in time that last experience was? Or the other one is, what does it feel like in terms of how much other stuff have I consumed that's relevant to this? 
Um, and it's that feeling that actually drives subsequent enjoyment, choice to reconsume something, uh, as opposed to the absolute magnitude of how much was consumed. So I'll give you one example. Um, if you just had 10 M&Ms, is that a lot of M&Ms or is that few M&Ms? I don't know. I have no idea. I as have well. no idea. I, I have no idea. Kurt, Kurt normally keeps yeah. track of not that. Not enough so. for me. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. Ten M&Ms, not a nearly enough. Right. But, but that's me, but don't you know? me. Right. But that kind of makes the point, right? Like we don't know, and there's no meter in our body to tell us, oh, you've had ten, therefore the eleventh one is going to be this enjoyable, or therefore you should stop, or therefore you should continue. Instead, we use whatever context we have around us to determine whether 10 is a lot or few. And I, as the experimenter or marketer perhaps, can manipulate the context to make it feel like you've had a lot or had few. So we have one study in particular uh, where we're really interested in food consumption. And we have a study that we ran with Panera Breads. So we went to the Panera Bre- one of the local Panera Breads here. Um, and what we were looking at is subjective time perception. So not when did you eat your lunch, but what does it feel like you last ate your lunch? And what I can do is I could change that feeling. And if I made you feel like lunch happened a long time ago, you buy more and eat more at Panera Breads. And if I make you feel like lunch was pretty recent, you buy less and eat less at Panera Breads. Oh my so depending on who you are, policymaker trying to minimize something like obesity or firm trying to maximize consumption or purchase, um, you can really move people around in terms of what they're actually going to do. Real behaviors like eating... Um, we have other studies where we look at things like music consumption to right. say, you know, do you enjoy listening to the song the nth time? Well, it's not a function of how many times you listen to it. It's a function of how many times it feels like you listen to it. So one instantiation of that is we might say, um, on a scale from one to 15 or more, how many times have you listened to the song? And let's say you listen to it 12 times or something like that. Well, it feels like a lot, right? Yeah. But on that scale, that's a lot. Yeah. On another scale, for another group of participants, I might say, how many times did you listen to this? One to a thousand times or something like no, that. And you're 12. like, oh, well, that doesn't feel like a lot at all. I love listening to that song again. And it's all it takes. It's a very small shift in perception of how much you've consumed or when you consumed it or what other things you've consumed that changes real enjoyment and subsequent choice to reconsume. So how you frame thinking about the, the amount of consumption that you've had. Yeah. yeah. For example, how much consumption, when you consumed it, and then the third variable is usually um, how many other things you've consumed. So we could imagine having a varied experience, like a playlist with you know one band versus many bands on it. The one with many bands on it is generally going to be more enjoyable for longer. So so when I get in the car and my kids put Hamilton on right. for the upteenth time, right? Some variety in between those exposures it would help. make it better. <laughs> so I should say you should just let me listen to my music for yeah. a couple songs. And then go in because I will enjoy it better and I will yes. allow you to actually listen Although as opposed to. As a small aside, what's really interesting about this area of hedonic decline is that in theory, though in practice it doesn't manifest too much, there's before hedonic decline occurs okay. for novel stimuli, so for yeah. you've never heard before, there actually tends to be an escalation of enjoyment. So yes. if I were to like plot this over time, there's this initial increase in enjoyment which is short-lived, but then there's this precipitous decline that happens afterwards. Well, uh, it, it, yeah. we'll talk music because Tim always talks music later, but you, when you talk about that, there's that initial response that I get that you hear a new song that first time and it catches you, but then yeah. the second time it's like, oh yeah, this is, in, and you, you, you do. And yep. so that for that first couple times of listening, you're like, oh, I like that that song. You, you listen to more of the lyrics, you get to understand more of the lyrics and, and all that component, and then... At some point, I just say, yeah. that's enough. So, yeah, and, and so for music, one of the things we know is that the complexity of the song, defined very broadly, is one of the, re- one of the inputs to that yeah. distinction. So a simple song, very short increase period, and very fast decline. 
uh, a really complex, rich song. Like I, I always think to like Bohemian Rhapsody, right? There's so much depth to that right. song. A lot of complexity. It takes so long before you really understand all of it and hear all of it that that decline doesn't come until a lot later. Well, and it, it's interesting. Wow. So if you saw the the movie, right? And I don't know if this is based in fact or not, but they talked about the initial panning of that song by all of the critics. Right. It was lambasted. It was nobody liked it. No, it too was long, horrible. too complex, it was, it was too like, weird. Yeah. Stuff. <laughs> All these things. Yeah. And so to that point, yeah. it, it makes an interesting, what's the uptake on that complexity of a song yeah. and do, how much do you have to overcome in order for it to actually get to a point where people actually will like it? So, yeah, this, And the standard theory that explains it is it's, it's learning, right? So learning is pleasurable from a neurological perspective. And so as you learn something that's, com- it t- excuse me, it takes longer to learn something and understand something that's complex, then that's something that's really simple. And so the more complex, the longer you have that time period to learn. Every time you hear the song, you hear something new. Every time you look at a you know amazing work of art, it takes some time before you see all the nuance in it. But once you get that point, everything is downhill from there. Um, wow. Yeah. Wow. I'm, I'm, I'm just totally caught up in that. I think that that is so cool. I'm just... Now Tim I'm, is the songwriter is now thinking yeah. through all of his old songs going, am I too complex or too simple? Yeah. There well, you go. I, I mean, this has been a, a question in, uh, you know, on, in the music industry for a long time about why, you know, so everything for many years got boiled down to 305. If, sure. if, if you couldn't, if a record company couldn't produce a song in three minutes and five seconds, it wasn't going to be aired. They, that was that was the the maximum. Um, Billy Joel even referenced it in a song uh, that he wrote about, and they cut it down to three oh five. So because that was the industry said three three uh, minutes and five seconds is the absolute maximum. And then songs come along in the, in the seventies uh, in, in pop music, you know, that are longer than that. And you get to like uh, in the early seventies, uh, songs like Sweet Judy Blue Eyes or Down by the River are songs that are lengthy, seven minutes, thirteen minutes long. Inagata Davida. Inagata Davida was nineteen seventy two, thirteen minutes long with a five minute drum solo, and it got played. People love listening to that. So. No. I could wax on, but I'm looking into <laughs> completely glazed faces there that our listeners are yeah. unable to, to really just enjoy for right now. But I'm still back at what was the 305? I mean, it seems like it's such an odd number. Three, yeah. Not three minutes, not three minutes and 30 seconds, three no. minutes and five seconds. Some I don't know. arbitrary executive said this is it. We'll have that to, stuck. that's going to take some more research, unfortunately. So anyway, Jeff, you were talking about this hedonic um, decline, all of these various things. Yeah. And we were talking about insi- or, um, listener yes. kind of components. So, so what this can you is do? leading somewhere. Um, the, there's the stuff that's hard and the stuff that's relatively easy. So the harder stuff is... If you want to keep enjoying the experiences that you love right now, yep. add variety to them. Mm. Right? That's an, that, it's, I, th- I put that as hard because that requires a change in behavior. Right? If you love eating M&Ms, I'm going to suggest you have some Skittles every once in a while. But that means doing what? something different. Yeah, crazy. Uh, <laughs> I know. It's, Sorry, it's like uh, yeah. blasphemy, man. <laughs> uh, I think we just lost half our listeners right there. Like, oh, what? The, this was good up until that point of Skittles. Um, so, again, that's that's difficult, right? I, I think anytime you recommend to someone that they have to change the way they do things, that's gonna, you know the uptake on that is going to be pretty minimal, and I understand that. Uh, the easier one, and this is why I was talking about this idea that that hedonic um, decline is kind of constructed in the moment um, is you can think about things differently. So every time you're about to have your same sandwich for lunch every day, 
instead of just lamenting about the sandwich, think about the meals that you've had since you've had that last sandwich. Think about the nice dinner you had the night before, the snacks that you had, the breakfast that you ate. So we can do the framing on ourselves, We basically. can, yeah. Wow. Uh, and so you can basically, I don't want to say trick yourself because that feels a little weird, but that's roughly yeah. what you're trying to do. You're trying to position the experience in the context of all of your experiences as opposed to the thing you happen to be focusing on at that very moment, which is the sandwich you're about to eat. So looking at those those moments in between my last bologna sandwich. Yeah. Yeah. And so you, there are ways that you, that's exactly it, right? But there are ways to play with time as well. So we know that the more markers that you have between um, memory episodes, the longer in time that feels. So for instance, um, if we think about when was your last birthday, right? You might say, okay, well, it was whatever many months ago. And you say, okay, well, enumerate all the things you've done since your last birthday. Yeah. And you say, okay, you start thinking about that. And all of a sudden, your birthday feels like it happened a long time ago. So it's actually fairly easy to move around this perception of when something occurred. And if you can do that in the shorter scale for, let's say, food consumption or music listening or whatever, um, you should be able to move around your actual experience that you're about to have. That's fascinating. I love that. That's a, that's a great tip. Well, and I love the fact that it's actually your enjoyment of that whatever it would be yep. is actually impacted. Yes, it, it, very much it, so. it is. It is a physical, it goes back to some of the, the, the stuff we've talked about in thinking through like the, the research on, on wine consumption and the, the component of where they frame it as being an expensive wine or a cheap wine yep. and the way that you actually, it, regardless, it's the same wine, but you enjoy that expensive wine yeah, so much this, more. The, and it's how you in, think about it. In the decision-making world, the idea of constructed preferences has been mm-hmm. around for a while, and we're thinking of it in exactly the same way. We're saying this is constructed hedonic experience, right, yeah. uh, as a function of whatever's happening in the past. Yeah, yeah that that is terrific. Uh, so, what did you you use music, right? In uh, we do. You yeah. actually use music in this. So, um, across the, the many experiments that we've ran, we use lots of different stimuli. Um, food is our favorite one because it's so visceral for people, right? They eat it. They, it's they feel. Hungry or not hungry, or they eat or they don't eat. They enjoy their food, they don't enjoy it. It's great. But food is really hard because food requires people coming to a laboratory. We have to have sterile conditions or at least sanitary conditions. We have to have everything correct. You know, like it's hard to do. Um, and so what we try to do is find stimuli that are enjoyable to people, uh, but that we could administer maybe either online or we can just simplify the whole process. So those tend to be things like uh, art. So we have people look at uh, either photos or famous artworks and they do that repeatedly or there's a photo slideshow or something like that. Uh, we have people watch movies or TV shows. And so that's in the same spirit. Uh, but a lot of what we do is have people listen to songs. So we'll have people, uh, we'll give people a choice of something like 30 songs and we'll usually break it up like, uh, top 10 hits for people who like that, maybe some classic rock uh, and some classical music. So we kind of try to hit most people's preferences. Okay. So they get to choose what they like. And so by definition, that's going to be a song that's really enjoyable at first because they've just told us that that's what they want. Uh, and then we're going to put them through a painful exercise of listening to that song repeatedly a number of times. And that's our simulation of what life is really like, which is you listening over and over again. Um, now, I admit, in the real world, you're not listening to your favorite song 10 times in a row. Well, then maybe you are. Well, uh, maybe. Maybe, right? maybe we you are. You might have Hamilton on repeat going. Maybe. You know? Not by <laughs> choice, but maybe. Yes. Hashtag yeah. just saying. <laughs> yeah. um, but what the lab setting lets us do is say, okay, we can find this context. We observe that people enjoy an experience that over time they enjoyed less. And then we can kind of mess with that. right? We can say, well, what can we do to slow down that rate of of decline? What can we do uh, to accelerate it if we're trying to understand the deep psychology of it? And once we have this simulation of the real world, you know, it's like a sandbox that we can play in. So, and, and the framing becomes that's the, one of that the, manipulation. That's one of the manipulations, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to the real world and thinking about classic rock stations. Sure. 
So how, in if this hedonic decline is occurring, I classic rock stations are playing the same song from 19... That Tim listens to over and over oh, and over no. again. No. <laughs> you know, the same Crosby, Stills, and Nash song from 1974. Sure. So we can you can unpack anything into kind of two components. One is the, like the inherent quality of it. So okay. certainly some songs are better than others. That's subjective, but at the end of the day, you know, some there are some are songs, better, yes. some songs make it to the top some 100 just, and some don't, right? Which is why we don't hear yeah. Inagata De Vida on the radio anymore. Is <laughs> that right? I think that that's proof positive right there. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Thank God for that. Uh, yeah. So so you've got that. So you have to start with the base of some things are just going to be better than others. So of course, as a radio station that wants to attract listeners, you're going to play the stuff that's better, right? Yeah. And then on top of that, you've got for every individual how much they're tuning into the radio and how much they're listening to it and for somebody who's got it on all the time constantly yeah i think you might lose that listener after a while but that's probably not most people's experiences right most people are tuning in occasionally they catch a song there's some repetition but it's really not going to be to the degree that's going to cause uh, problems for the radio station but where by the way i think it gets really interesting and i tried for the longest time uh, to partner with a company like pandora to say, hey, can we play with your algorithm and oh. see if we can figure out how to optimize it in some ways? I'm sure they're doing that, by the way, right? They have scientists that do this as well. I want to do it too. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, there, I think it's interesting. Like when I listen to Pandora for like my workout mix or whatever, I forget even what it's seated with. Um, I do get a lot of repetition, and so I'm wondering, you know, are they really optimizing? Are they really thinking through this idea that yes, I, I said I like that song, but let's be clear, I don't want to hear it 20 times, yeah. right? I like it yeah. occasionally. And where they play with that is, is really interesting to me, right? I want to say they want to play songs that they know I will like because that'll keep me as a customer, um, but they don't want to overdo it. And there's the right, you know, the right amount to do, and I don't think they're there yet. Well, and I'd be interested because I've had the same thought in my head where it, not only is it the same song, but it's the same genre of music. Yeah. And so I would be very happy if in my Pandora mix that all of a sudden they throw in something that is... Not in that same genre. Yeah. Similar, but different enough that it's noticeable. Uh, I am now going, oh, that's unique and cool. Yeah. And so we know, for instance, like when we talk about variety, uh, similarity is a continuum, right? So things can, you know, the same thing is identical. That's super similar, right? Two yep. wildly different things are very different, not yep. similar, but there's everything in between. So same artist, same album, same genre, right? However you play with it, um, there's varying similarity and they should be taking advantage of that. They should yep. be. I think that that's cool. So I want to. Uh, I'm going to go back on to the classic rock thing, and I'm sorry, Tim. <laughs> um, is this a harping thing? No, is this, this is not a harping thing. This okay. is actually a question, and I don't know. I, I don't think your research went into this, but I, I, I'm, I'm wondering. So, with the classic rock component, and and people of a certain age, it, that we first heard those songs back in a very formative time of sure. our life, and 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 so to a certain degree. When we hear those songs, we we tend to potentially go back in time to that moment or that era of our yeah. life. And does that have so? Is there anything about this hedonic decline where you know what I might not have listened to my um, you know Van Halen song for the upteenth time in 1987, and I'm just sick of it. But now that I hear it because it's been so long, sure. 
How does that work? I mean, so, have you done anything to, to not, look at that? Not exactly, but funny enough, I do study uh, this area of sentimental value, uh, which is, I think, fascinating. And so I'm going to distinguish sentimental value from nostalgia, which is what I think you're talking about. Okay. So the difference is nostalgia is a longing for the past. Okay. So you might say, hey, weren't, weren't things great back in high school when I was, you know, rocking my leather jacket or whatever? When I had hair, <laughs> you know, and it was um, awesome. <laughs> uh, but sentimental value is separate. It's basically the value you're getting right in the moment from an object that has some connection to some other person or event, right? Cool. So the song might just give you value because it makes you think of how fun high school was. It yeah. doesn't make you want to go back in time and relive it. It's just kind of inherently extra value, extra special. Um, and so so the short answer is yes, right? Like you might be continuing to listen to that because on top of all the things we've talked about, there is some component of sentimental value that you're getting in the moment. And maybe there's also some nostalgia in there as well where yeah. you might say, hey, wouldn't it be great, you know? Very cool. Yeah. Sentimental value is good. Yeah. Yeah. Sentimental value is great. Yeah. yeah. Kurt, is there anything else that you'd like to No, I think this has been really fascinating. I am I'm gonna have fun in this grooving session. So <laughs> Yeah, this it is gonna be fun. But Jeff, thank you very much. My we pleasure. really appreciate you being a part of the uh, a part of this little time here at uh, Carnegie Mellon. Thank you for having me. Welcome to our grooving session, where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our Behavioral Grooves interview, have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics, and whatever else comes into our hedonically declining brains. Declining! Actually, it could just be declining, maybe not (laughs) hedonically declining. It could just very well be declining. And and everything that falls under decline would fit. (laughs) (laughs) I think everything would fit. So, so Kurt, what what struck you? Hedonic hedonic decline. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I thought the concept was really interesting. Uh, there's that component of, you know, looking at a song. I, I thought what was really interesting is the the complexity or lack of complex the the simplicity or the complexity of the song helped in the rate of that decline. So the simpler yeah. the song, the more you liked it at the beginning, easier it was to kind of get. Oh, this is catchy, groovy. I like it. But the quicker that it declined, um, and I thought that might have some kind of components that would also play into businesses. So, yeah, I, it certainly would. I, I agreed. First, I got to say, I think it's pretty awesome that we have a guest just volunteer music as the, as the metaphor for the basis of the work. That was pretty great. You would like, it. I was pretty happy with that. So Jeff like gets double bonus points for me from that. But yeah. So like, if we think about adaption or adoption of a product, what about, an iPhone. How about a product that is so easy to use in, if we just think of it as a phone, super Mm -hmm. easy, yet a level of complexity that if we wanted to go beyond phone, we've got messages and we've got email and we've got GPS and we've got thousands of, literally thousands of apps to keep our brain engaged and continuously learning more about this one device. But the, the the element of that that you're saying is it combines both that simplicity with the complexity. That's right. So it combines simplicity to get us in, to make it easy. And it's like, oh, that's that little earworm song, right, that we like. But it's also Bohemian Rhapsody on the back end because it's going to continue to challenge us and give us something rewarding for a long time. Which is one of the reasons that the smartphones, right, have become so ubiquitous that they have just taken over the world as part of that. So from an organizational perspective, what what can you do to your product to both make it uh, 
simple and yet have that level, that layer of complexity on it. Right, right. That, that, that's the question is if you're developing a new product or a new service, how can it be super easy to grasp up front that has that um, that earworm kind of capability of, oh, this is going to be super easy. Oh, I like the sound of this, like from the first time I heard it. And, uh, but if it only stays in that simple mode, then the decline happens quickly. Right. So it's got to have complexity on the back end to keep the, the, the listener, so to speak, the, the customer or, or the employee engaged for a longer period of time. So going on your employee component, how do we use this inside of an organization with teams or with the systems and processes that you have in place, the incentives that are are being done? Is there any way, again, to take that component of saying, hey, do we get to a point of, of hedonic decline where this, this task is no longer fun, right? Yeah. Well, um, you know, or, but before you got to that end, I was thinking you use the four drive model a lot in your consulting work. And so that that uh, around challenge, this is an important part of it, right? We need to be challenged. Yeah, the drive the drive to challenge, and I always use the often use the example of it's like a video game, right? If I'm playing Pac-Man and I, you know, I, I get in and it's fun and I'm playing and it's a challenge, but then once I I master that level one, if level two is exactly the same and I can get through it easy and level three is the same, I'm not going to play that very much longer. I need right. to increase, the challenge needs to increase. Right. And so that gets into, again, that that element of, hey, it's relatively easy to understand and get in. Again, using the Pac-Man analogy, you go in, you got to get these dots and evade the ghosts and try to do that. But then if that complexity doesn't increase, you're not learning. You're not having any more challenges to it. So I think that can play into this. So thinking about jobs, right? Uh, Is my job one where it becomes so routine that I've I've kind of become, you know, the, the enjoyment, the challenge. I'm no longer learning inside of that work. Yeah. So, are we are we necessarily talking about white collar jobs versus blue collar jobs? No, I, I think you can have it in both, right? I mean, I think there are there are jobs that are both blue collar that can be challenging, that you yep. can have new challenges presented on on that every time. I, I think of you know my plumber who we call on way too too often, <laughs> but each time is a brand new challenge, and sometimes it it's being you know it idiot is. user, you know, yep. but sometimes it's you know other challenges that they have to figure out, and it's kind of that component. In the same instance, I think you can have white collar jobs where that work is really redundant. It, it you yeah, know, you're entering data in, you're doing whatever the same report, the uh, same report every, every every specific amount of time. Every month, every week, whatever it would be. Yeah. You're dealing with customers in the same exact way. Even salespeople where, you know, it is a a script that you're reading. So so I think there's ways to think about the way that you design a job. And can you build it so that you're keeping some of that complexity in, um, but yes, still making it easy enough to, to understand? One of the things that we talked about in a past episode was this component of using uh, extrinsic incentive to jumpstart some intrinsic motivation. So yes, this is where yes. you go into... Glad you brought that up. Into some of this component of saying, hey, 
I have a job or a task or something that you're doing that might be complex and may not get somebody really motivated to do it. It might be difficult, right? I have to learn. I have to do something above and beyond. But, and so I may not just naturally be inclined to do it. However, if I give you an incentive to start, now I have that inclination to, to start and to start doing it. And can that then lend itself into, wow, this is actually challenging. I'm liking this. This is something that is right. interesting. And so do... But it took getting a little sugar on the cereal before you tried it. Right. Yeah. And th- and this is this is part of my beef with the way the Dan Pink message uh, from his book Drive has become evangelized. It's all around, no, any kind of extrinsic motivation is bad. It's We've always got to rely on intrinsic. And I think that that's just bullshit. I think that we really need to think that there are situations where it's really good to have you know, just to think about putting a little sugar on the cereal to get somebody in to to especially a more difficult task to get them engaged, and then they find oh, there's something rewarding about this. There is something intrinsically interesting about this. I'm finding rewards in just doing the work. No, we can go off on a whole separate topic on, yes. on Dan Pink and just the fact of how <laughs> how the incentive is designed can impact you know the the overall motivation and other things. He used a lot of DC and Ryan and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, yeah. What else did you find interesting? Well, I think the whole discussion of heels uh, is so interesting. I got I got to go there because I love. Uh, This has been on my mind for a long time, this whole idea of how we like to perceive ourselves. And this relates back to incentives and rewards. Okay. People who earn uh, non-monetary awards, unlike people uh, who earn more cash rewards, are more likely to indulge. And so they're going to have more stuff in their house. They might have a a bigger vacation than they would would afford for themselves. they they got a a bigger TV or a home theater system that's that's more generous and more luxurious than what they would spend their own money on. And that... Uh, gets them into a higher, sort of a, a slightly, they get a little closer to country club and a little further away from Sam's Club. So taking the the conversation that we had about yeah, the heels, yeah, right, yeah, and bringing it back to that, you're, what you're saying is the fact that, hey, I moved to a, uh, a zip code that has a lesser um, socioeconomic, socioeconomic yeah. component, I keep my higher level heels because that differentiates me that differentiates me and That's puts right. me closer to the country club versus the other way around yeah and and if it is if i move from the sam's club to the country club i want to quickly adopt the new country club modes right i want i want to be seen as on par rather than being subpar so uh, you know my own personal I, i'm going back way way back right when i was a, a teenager i moved from Wyzetta, Minnesota, one of the most uh, an elite, elite upscale yeah. kind of um, zip codes in the country to uh, Bettendorf, Iowa, which is a nice place, but it does not have that right. same component. And, and how did you feel when you were making that move? Did you feel like you were going from country club to Sam's Club? More, more, yeah. I mean, there there was a component of it, yeah. and, and obviously some of it was true, some of it wasn't. You know, there's there's different components around that. But I was trying to think back when when we started talking about this, did I change the way that I dressed? Did I modify how I looked to fit in with the current styles that were in Bettendorf? Or did I maintain the styles that we had at Wyzetta Junior High? 
um, versus, you know, wow. Blackhawk Junior High down in <laughs> Iowa. And I, I, I you know, it's many, many, many years ago. But I think I kind of stayed with it up until a certain point. And then at a certain point, I just more identified with, you know, I, I didn't, you know, it was further away. So it, I didn't not. Right. And yeah. eventually you were, because you were living every single day in Bettendorf, Iowa, uh, a small town, uh, right? And that that became your life. Yeah. So those became the social norms that, that you finally adapted to. Yeah. So it's interesting. So I think that the heel component is, you know, it's a, uh, a window into a larger component of how we view ourselves and then how we maintain or adapt some of those older components when we move into different kind of socioeconomic statuses. Wonder if there's components of the same thing, even maybe not zip code moving, but you know, what happens if you uh, do economically really well for a while and then fall into economic hard times? Do you mm-hmm. maintain yep. those the the trappings of that higher wealth status or do you go, oh no, I need to cut you know what we spend and I'm not going to drive that car. I'm not going to dress in you know in those, those expensive clothes, clothes yeah, yeah. Uh, this this also relates to uh, uh, an old meme around dress in the job that you want to to be. You know, so if, if you're a junior associate and you want to eventually become a more senior associate in that organization, then you should wear the clothes of the senior, you know, sort of make yourself look like you're already part of that club, part of that tribe. Interesting. And um, this was uh, even further back when dinosaurs ruled the earth and I was in college. That was a pretty common, that was a pretty common model. And I, and I see, I see it comes up every now and then in, in searches. I still see people writing about, about dress in the role that you want to take on. And I think that's really interesting. Again, it does it signal tribe? Does does dress signal that you are part of Absolutely. this tribe? Various different things. I, I think there's some some merit to that. If if it is something that isn't necessarily uh, about you, right? I think there's also this component of well, but dressing in somebody else's clothes takes away from who I am. And so therefore, why should I have to do that? Yeah. Which I could see there could be some ethical considerations of that. But I think, it, again, these are things that happen, I think, at a subconscious level. They're not consciously thinking, oh, uh, the people in the current tribe that I'm trying to dress up to or not dress up to. Oh, right. right. Yeah. So, right. Okay, what else? The, the whole conversation on policy lies oh, versus yeah. personal lies. And, you know, looking at that from the whole political spectrum is really interesting. And you can kind of look at the current political environment right now. And and you wonder, it it doesn't seem like it necessarily is as applicable in maybe with certain individuals, I don't know, that are currently out there that do seem to do both policy and personal lies, and yet they still have a maintain a base. Not going to go there because I think that that's a whole another. <laughs> that's, that's another whole thing, right? But I do wonder in in our personal lives, do oh, okay. we? Yeah, do we take those lies that we we tend to all? I would I would I would argue that all of us lie. 
right? Dan Ariely says that we we all lie. Everybody's in. You know, it's to the extent that we lie. And and I'm wondering if it's not only the extent, but it's what we lie about. About, yeah. And so do we have more components if I was I'm I'm working with a potential new client and not that I would do this. Um, but you know, they're asking how many of these programs have you done? And I go, Oh, I've done, you know, six of them. When in reality I've done maybe two and four that are kind of like it, but I could probably, (laughs) you know, and they find out, you're stretching a bit. I'm stretching a bit, um, you know, versus something about me personally. Um, you know, which one has the greater magnitude on how well they, they trust or like me. Yeah. So, or, or say that's Okay. Right, because that was part of this what, component. It was where do that, we give permission? Where do we allow that to happen? Right, and what do you think? Uh, I, I think that uh, in my own life, I can think of uh, sort of the stretches, and when I've been aware of people that I know are in a, in a business situation, and they're kind of stretching at the truth, and I, I, I'm much more forgiving of that. The resume, right? Pretty much every resume. <laughs> I was responsible for blah 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 blah, <laughs> and you're going, yeah, really? you you worked on the team, <laughs> and you were you know a junior associate, so. But to hear someone say, "Oh, yeah, you know, I, I knew that person in high school when I when I know that they didn't," it's yeah. like, "Why would you say that?" Exactly. Why would you go there? Yeah. And and so I'm I'm uh, as being one of I, I was in a rock band when I was a kid. <laughs> that doesn't really. But you were. I was not. <laughs> there was no way I was. You know. So yeah, I did have rock rock band hair at one point. I, I want to see pictures. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any. I'm sorry. Maybe that was a real lie. I don't know. There we go. But I think there's something to that, right? There's something to the component of, you know, what you're lying about. And is it yeah. Is it personal in nature or is it more general in nature? And I think you're much more forgiving of those more general ones. So Yeah. Okay, so we did we, we had this conversation with Jeff about uh, the complexity and the simplicity of music. Do you what what? Is, give me an example of a complex song that you took a long time to to really really enjoy, but eventually you fell in love with it. Oh my God! You're asking me specifics. You know I don't do specifics. I do generals. Okay. I do the the broad answer. So um, I, I don't. I, I know there are the. the when he talked about that, it resonated. It, with it me. did resonate with it you. It resonated with me very did much. Did Bohemian so. Rhapsody resonate with you? I mean, we talked about. Didn't he talk about Bohemian? Rhapsody? Yeah, he talked yeah. about Bohemian Rhapsody, and yeah, yeah, it's. I mean, was that, that a song that you were instantly engaged in, or did it sort of take a while? You know, I think it was one of those songs that I just grew up with and heard on the radio yeah. over back and in over the day again. Yeah. because that's what you did. Yeah, um, and and then throughout the you know Mike Myers and. And uh, you know Wayne's, Wayne's World, World, you know, brought it back to the that was that was its second because it, it hit number one again af- yeah. after that, right? Yeah, Which twenty years after the original or whatever it was. So I think there, it, it I, I don't know. That's my my question. Okay. That being said, I do know there's some simple songs that I have just absolutely loved, and then very quickly got sick of because I listened to them, you know over and over and then it's just like yeah I'm done done with this and I don't you know there's other songs that I think have more complexity and for me it's often 
uh, lyrical complexity in in trying to understand the words and the the meaning of those words than than maybe the musical component. So, hmm. yeah. Okay. What about you? My, I remember very distinctly hearing um, Asia by Steely Dan, that album. And oh, I thought you meant the band Asia. I was no, like, oh my no. gosh, Tim. No, I remember That's an the 80s ba- band. I know. They were a great band, actually. <laughs> but um, you never talk about 80s bands. You just talk about 70s and 60s bands. Let's talk about Toto. We could talk about Toto for hours because I, I love those guys. They're an 80s band, right? They were a 70s band. They were not. I think they started they, maybe, in the 70s. Well, okay, so, but... What, when was Africa and ninety uh, nine and and all those tunes? Those were in the eighties. They're in a seventies <laughs> band that just made music in the eighties. But okay, let's go with that. Anyway, you're Asia from Steely Dan. Steely, yeah. So I just I remember hearing it the first time and just going, what really? What's appealing about that? There's there's a, hook, a little bit of a hook here. There's a little bit of a hook there. And then the more that I heard it, it was like, oh. Wow, I like the, I like and how do they do those vocals? And oh my gosh, the the horn section that comes in just right there, or or the guitar lead that that doesn't start on the downbeat, and and it got uh, the complexity continued to just draw me in and draw me in and draw me in. Very cool. So yeah, love that tune. All oh, right, okay. That Thank wrap, you. That wraps up our uh, another discussion. Please, if you haven't already, and uh, I'm sure everyone right now is turning to create a review on their favorite podcasting service. Um, Scroll down on your phone. Be a part of the many who are already doing it at this moment. And with that, keep keep on on grooving. grooving.